From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 12, Emmanuel, Christ in the Creeds. All right, Taylor, so today we're jumping into chapter 12 called Emmanuel, Christ in the Creeds. Mm -hmm. And throughout this, uh, I don't know, these last few chapters that we've been looking at where Christianity has sort of moved into the mainstream of the Roman Empire and is gaining more power and prominence in the empire, one of the things we're seeing is that there's a big question mark around Jesus. And a lot of the like heresies that have popped up uh, are about Jesus and 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 who is he and sort of what is his nature and what is his relationship to God the Father. And so one of the things the church started doing in probably the 200s was the church started formulating creeds. Mm-hmm. And one of the most famous creeds, which we've we talked about before in a previous chapter, is the Apostles' Creed. Right. In which we get uh, the Apostles' Creed is real succinct, right? It, it it tells us a little bit about Jesus, but it doesn't go into like great detail on who Jesus is or what his nature is or uh, how is he both God and man and all of those kinds of things. And so, the deeper we get into Christianity being in the mainstream, the more that these questions come to the surface, and the more the church seems to devote some scholarly attention to. Um, addressing some things that are wrong or false in the teaching of some people, but also trying to find language to encapsulate what who Jesus actually is and how do we talk about him and how do we think about him. Yeah, and, and I think it's good to remind ourselves that a, a big reason for these creeds in the first place was for, for there to be some simple... Some simple um, just words to remember your basics of faith because right. not everybody had a Bible. In fact, nobody. Right. Nobody was just walking around with a Bible, and many church um, congregations and communities didn't have all of the scrolls that would would eventually make up our modern Bible anyway. So this this heresy that we saw popping up almost immediately and continued to pop up throughout the first few centuries could really only be combated at the local level and at the common level by the use of creeds. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't sound right what you're saying about Jesus, because as a global church, we believe X, Y, and Z about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that Shelley brings up very quickly in the chapter is that one of, one of the words that people come to use for Christ is, is this sort of compound word, God-man. Right. And that's how he comes to be referred to in some creedal statements. And yet, what does that mean? How is that so? Like, that that really is one of the big questions. How how can God also be man? Yeah. Um, how, how can a human woman give birth to God? Sure. Is that actually what has happened? You know, like, or is, is, is there some other way to think about this or explain this? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there's just a lot of confusion. And what's happening here is... The Bible contains all of this language about God that that we could call accommodation language, especially if we're talking about the the Godhead, like the Father, Son, and Spirit, or we're talking about 
God in the Old Testament, like a lot of times the sort of uh, human words, or you could say sort of the anthropomorphic words that are used to describe God are meant to help us better understand him, even though even our human language may fall short of really fully encapsulating who God is. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the challenges that any creedal statement runs into is right like we we are finite in nature so we can't fully understand god but god has given us some biblical language that provide us with some handholds i think to help us kind of move a little bit closer in understanding yeah. to who he is and what he's like so yeah and that's really what kicks off well that that's kind of what's driven the last couple of chapters mm. Uh, but especially this one. So we've we've talked about the Trinity and the the heresies around the Trinity and a, what it means to have a triune God, and that culminated in uh, the Council of Nicaea and then later the Council of Constantinople. Mm-hmm. But now w- what we do in this chapter is Shelley jumps forward about a hundred years and puts us at 451, which is the Council of Chalcedon. And mm-hmm. so if the councils of Nicaea and Constantinople kind of decided on some creedal statements for what it means to have a triune God. The Council of Chalcedon really developed um, the church's Christology, and so right. their their thoughts about Jesus, and like you said, the their thoughts about this God-man, and the fact that it's not a ratio or like a percentage mm. of each, or a, it's it is both mysterious and yet true. Right. And what we see as we jump into... so. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. 451 is the date for that council. But what we Mm -hmm. see in the rest of the chapter as we kind of flash back are the individuals and the thoughts around Jesus that kind of led us to that council. So we start with 451, jump backwards again, and Shelley uses the chapter to kind of fill in the gaps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the specific Christian doctrine we're talking about here is what's called the doctrine of the incarnation, Uh, that the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And, you know, it's, it's real challenging, especially if you start trying, as you said, to apply ratios to mm-hmm. our understanding, well, how much of him is man, sure. and how much of him is God, and how can he be 100% God, but also 100% man? How do those things, how do those uh, kind of dual natures interact with each other as well? And, and you know, this is not uh, a perfect fit in terms of... Uh, a way to understand this, but but even with myself, like I am both a husband and a father, and it would be impossible for me to sort of like quantify what part of me is each of those things. Um, it, it, it's like that's that's not even really how I think about it. Mm-hmm. But I could, if you if you're kind of coming into a context where you've never heard of somebody being a husband and a father before, and you're trying to figure out how those two things kind of come together, yeah. then and then I could maybe understand why you start to go, well, is 35% of you a father and the rest of you is a husband? Well, I, no, that's not at all kind of what this is. It, it's sort of a it's sort of a full piece of each of these things is sort of a full piece of me. Yeah, I can see that. Um, so, so again, that's not like a perfectly analogous type thing, but, but, but that is sort of what's going on here is people are just trying, trying to understand this. Like, how do we yeah. talk about this? How do we think about this? Yeah, I, I know. I personally grew up with a lot of the, and maybe they were unconscious thoughts. I don't know if I would have really admitted this, but 
even when reading scripture as I was younger, I would I would fall into the mindset of like, okay, Jesus is doing this particular miracle or something. So obviously he's God at that moment. And then later, maybe when he's sleeping or, or when he's hungry or tired, well, that, that must be human Jesus. And so without really realizing it, I was kind of drawing those breaks and kind of making my own little ratio in my head when right. when the mystery of this is is no, when Jesus is in the back of the boat asleep because he's really tired, it's because he's human, right. but he's no less Jesus, the eternal son of God at that point. And yeah, there aren't like sp- specific times where he is God and then right. other times where he's not. Like he taps into the, yeah, yeah. it's, and, and look, you know, we're, we're trying to find some metaphors right here and kind of discuss why this isn't the case. Uh, throw yourself back in the 400s when none of that had been really firmly established. Mm. And it's easy to see where all this confusion comes from. So uh, to jump into it, to, to kind of set the stage with what we've got in this chapter, um, the Roman Empire is starting to look very different. And so there are two major sides to the Roman Empire. You've got the East and the West. And the West now includes places like the city of Rome, which uh, for a long time within the history of the empire, you would have thought of that as kind of the center of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's Rome, yeah. right? So now the the capital has been moved to Constantinople, which is known as the East. And so you have this, this growing divide between two almost sort of emerging cultures and ways of thought, ways of life in the same Roman Empire. Um, because you've got an east and a west, you have the cities of Alexandria, uh, Antioch, Rome, and uh, what am I? And Constantinople. Alexandria, right, Antioch, right. Rome, and Constantinople are the four major cities that Shelley looks at. Uh, because what we have here is not only an east-west break for the empire, but kind of an east-west power struggle for the church. Right. And we've mentioned in several chapters by now that the church, as it becomes more a part of Roman life, um, it becomes more a part of the governmental order of Mm -hmm. the empire as well. But this is where we really start to see some of that sway and some of that power in the church. So you've got major bishops and major areas of, of influence in the cities of Rome and then the cities of Alexandria, um, or Antioch, rather. Mm-hmm. But what what you have is different areas of influence, different thoughts about certain things, and then you add on top of that maybe some political sway. And so all of that is going to go into what makes up these different heresies, these ways of thinking about Jesus, and why ultimately a council is needed to kind of settle all of this. Right, right. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's been division between East and West, you know, for as long as we've been talking about the Roman Empire in this course. And I mean, a lot of it is cultural, as we've talked about in previous episodes. Um, but but also, you know, kind of starting with Constantine, the actual like power centers of the empire, like the cities of power, moved more eastward. Like mm-hmm. he, he makes a very eastern city you know, really the city that's often thought of as the dividing line between East and West, Constantinople, um, the, the capital. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it is sort of a, an Eastern fringe of the empire yeah. at that point. So, so what we have uh, are this, these different Christian schools of thought. So mm-hmm. 
the two, I, I don't want to use the word competing, but in this context, they end up being more or less competing schools. There mm-hmm. is the School of Alexandria, if you remember the guys like Clement and Origen, right. uh, and the School of Antioch. And the reason that these schools are, are set as being a little bit different in their thinking is because they're thinking about Jesus is what comes to kind of spur off these folks who end up being, you know, decried as heretical. So in the Christian school of Alexandria, there was, Shelley says, a tendency to think of Jesus as more God than man, stressing his divine nature mm-hmm. with the danger of diminishing his humanity. And so... Alexandria was maybe the god over man in their thought, whereas in Antioch, the tendency was was to think of the full humanity of Jesus, finding his perfect virtue and human will as the thing which made him victorious over sin. But Mm. as we know, this is kind of the opposite. So this puts Jesus's divinity in danger. So you've got Alexandria, divine over human, Antioch, human over divine. And yeah. this, this wouldn't especially matter if you didn't have piled on top of all this um, enormous areas of influence around not only Christian thought, but right. but uh, governmental thinking. Yeah, because it seems to me that everybody, uh, everybody sort of leans one way or the other in, sure. in terms of their mental picture of Jesus. Like, you, you either err more on the side of him being divine, or you err more on the side of him being human right in in just your sort of mental picture heart picture however you want to think of it just your view of christ um and that's probably something you've never really like made any conscious decisions about it's either how he's been presented to you by other people or just how you read him in the scriptures mm-hmm. um it just sort of you know kind of you know so some people gravitate towards that more uh mystical piece which uh, mystical not in sort of a spooky sense of that word but mystical meaning like experiential mm-hmm. that 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 there is sort of this ex- spiritual experiential peace with Christ and I don't just need to know about human Jesus and facts about his life I also need to have some kind of an encounter with Jesus some kind yeah. of an experience with Jesus that is more mystical spiritual in nature mm-hmm. um, and and so yeah like I, I think just depending on sort of your disposition are are you more uh, intellectual or are you more of an experiential person right. just by nature then chances are that might color the way that you see Christ in some way and so what we're trying to arrive at here and what these ecumenical councils are, are trying to arrive at is, is balance within these views, um, that he is both and at the same time, um, which is confounding and, yeah. and mysterious, yeah. right? Yeah, it, it is. And so in doing this, you have these two major cities and schools with different persuasions for the person of Christ. And they're in separate parts of the Roman Empire, the new and the old, the east and the west. And over the next hundred or so years, these two camps end up sending their best minds to the task of disgusting their Christology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in doing so, we get this whole new list of heresies to throw around. And we'll try and make this next part simple because there are a lot of names coming from different places right. and a lot of right. thoughts about Jesus. Uh, so... 
let's see. Maybe we can. Maybe I'll run through the list and then we can kind of take them one by one. Okay. So, the chapter mentions uh, three three main voices that again that that drive the discussion or the debate culminating in the Council of Chalcedon. Mm-hmm. So these three voices are Apollinaris, Nestorius, and Eutyches. Um, so yeah. we'll start we'll start with the first one just chronologically. We've got Apollinaris who shared the Western view, uh, this is this being Alexandria, that Jesus was divine, but his divinity basically replaced the human soul. So Jesus was, for lack of a better term, just God in a skin suit. Right, right. Um, by 381, this view is shot down as heresy since, as we know, Jesus had human emotions. He had a will, a human psychology, and he also suffered and died. So the flaw that we see in Apollinaris's view, um, Shelley puts, is, is redemption. If Jesus was not human, how could he redeem anyone? Uh, and he quotes Gregory of Nazianzus in saying, what has not been assumed cannot be restored. Right. And I love that quote. Right. I think it's a, it's a perfect summation of why this thought is straying from orthodoxy and thus heretical. It's, it's wrong thinking about Jesus. If Jesus did not assume human form, then he can't restore human form. Yes, and you know one of the big things that comes up for the early church is the death of Jesus itself, and and it is connected to views like this because if Jesus isn't human, did he really die? Mm-hmm. And because if he's God, I think as we've talked about a little bit before, can can God die? Right, right, and come back from the dead. Um, what part of Jesus is it that dies? Um, like there are just all of these questions around these kinds of issues. But but this is what we know scripturally is that he does die. That that, that there isn't he doesn't faint. He doesn't, as some people might say, swoon. Um, he doesn't pass out and then come back to. Right. There there is an actual human death, and there is an actual human resurrection. And if there is no soul in this skin suit, then the argument would be there is no actual human death that mm-hmm. takes place. Yeah. Um, that, you know, he's, Jesus is not like a zombie, right? right. Um, so so that's, that's kind of mixed up in that whole stew as well of, yeah. you know, is he a human? Is he not a human? So. And, and I love that. It, that's, that really makes it tangible for me. Um, if he didn't do it, then by our faith in him, then we couldn't do it. Mm. If, if Jesus does not physically die, physically resurrect, physically ascend, then there's, and this is from the book uh, Gentle and Lowly that mm. we read during Advent. Mm. One of the chapters points all that out, that basically if he didn't actually do these things, mm-hmm. then we cannot actually do these things. And yet that's what's promised mm-hmm. in faith in Jesus. And so we have to look at something like this view of Apollinaris and say, no, that yeah. that can't be it. What What is promised is that even though we may face an actual human death, we will also see resurrection. That's right. At the last day. So, yeah. yeah. All right. So Apollinaris, um, Jesus is God in a skin suit, and everyone says, nope, you're wrong. <laughs> next up, uh, Next up, we've got maybe my favorite of these three, and that is Nestorius, um, who... <sighs> To me, and I've, I've used this before, but 
he honestly sounds like somebody trying to work out a thought in real time, mm-hmm. but it's like his rough draft is put in front of the, su- the Supreme Court and, and he can't explain himself very well, so he's just called a liar. Yeah. Um, n- now, it's there are apparently historians that, that say Nestorius was fully heretical, and there are others who say they, they can't quite figure out what his stance even was. Yeah, one of the challenges, and this is a challenge with Arius as well, um, if you remember the Arian controversy that led to the Council of Nicaea, one of the things that happens when somebody is deemed heretical is that anything they've written gets burned. Right. Right, because they've, they've written heresy. And, and so in today's world, it's very hard to figure out what their, what their actual position was because any, any like references to their position we're reading about in the writings of their opponents. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what we know about Arius comes from the writing of Athanasius, who is writing against Arius. And, you know, perhaps quotes from Arius at times from writings that we don't have today. But it's, it's you know, you've also kind of got to go, is he quoting uh, directly? Is he paraphrasing? Is he leaving things out so as to make his case better? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the problems we have, even with somebody like Nestorius, is just how much access do we have to his actual writing or his sermons or yeah. whatever so that we really can kind of take an unbiased view of his opinion. It's, it's a challenge. It's kind of that history is written by the victors yeah. claim. Yeah that's, yeah. yeah, that's true. So, okay, so to, to, to recap, Apollinaris is our first guy, and mm-hmm. he comes out of uh, the West, out of Alexandria. Uh, Nestorius, our second guy, comes out of Antioch. And um, Nestorius is... He, he's comfortable with the divine nature of Jesus as well as a human nature. That doesn't seem to be uh, in contention for Nestorius, but his big hang-up was in apparently the conception and delivery of Jesus. Mm. So Mary, uh, Nestorius says, did not give birth to God because God is eternal. She gave birth to Jesus. And so Nestorius is trying to draw some some difference, some like some break between mm. Jesus the man and Jesus the God. Uh, and you know, he's again, it seems like he's thinking through this just in real time. like, Okay, that that makes sense to me logically. That that Mary, a finite mm-hmm. female human, doesn't give birth to the eternal God. She gave birth to this human baby. Yeah. And so where where do you try and fit these two pieces together? And maybe this is maybe this is ignoring some of the mystery behind what ultimately we refer to as the God Man. Mm-hmm. But yes, and 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 I think to your point. Uh, you know, he takes issue with this word theotokos, yes. this Greek word that means God-bearer. It's a term that's used for Mary. It's still used by uh, the Orthodox Church today. Um, and, and, and his question, I think, is a valid question, right? Mm-hmm. His question is, how can a human woman give birth to God? Right. Like, it literally is a, uh, that hurts my brain. How, how, how could this possibly happen? Yeah, um, that that's at the at the foundation of just his questioning, and, but the reality is is like what you're what you're poking at right now is is something people still struggle with today. Uh, like there are people out there even today who, who hold beliefs such as when Jesus was born, 
he was just human Jesus. Mm-hmm. He was just a baby. And so then the question is, well, when does he become human and God? Or when right. does God Jesus become part of the equation? And and you've got people out there who would say, well, for the first 30 years of his life, he's human just, Jesus. Just this carpenter. That's right. And then he gets baptized by John the Baptist, and then, boom, something happens at his baptism, and that's the point where he becomes God Jesus as well. Right. And and some some would say, and, and, and at that point... Human Jesus really takes the back seat, and mm-hmm. it's primarily God Jesus who moves forward from there. So there's all kinds of like people. Uh, there's all kinds of like math going on in people's heads, <laughs> like in trying to figure this out. Um, and, and and so what Nestorius is um, pushing back against is, uh, I think, just some of this kind of mysterious um, language that becomes. The doctrine of the church, yeah. but yet at the end of the day, it's really difficult for us to understand how does a human woman give birth to God? How how can God be born? Mm-hmm. To be, you know, so those are not questions that we can easily answer, and yet they are the position of the church that that this is what happened. That that's and and I would say the position of Scripture that right. this is what happened. Um, yeah. So yeah. So. It, it does, Shelley does mention that apparently Nestorius is quoted from an autobiography that mm. I, maybe, I don't know if we still have, but that he did not oppose, and, and it's Shelley notes that he insisted that he did not oppose the use of the term God-bearer, yeah. um, not, because, not because he denied the Godhead of Christ, but to emphasize that he was born as a genuine human being with body and soul. So yeah, this gets back to our like, where do we place... Where do we place the math? Where do we put yeah. this this breakover point from human to divine? So, right. in any case, yeah. uh, Nestorius also, and this didn't help him, also had a very rough time on the political stage mm-hmm. for uh, just host of other reasons. Uh, but his Christology was never accepted, uh, and so he was written down as a heretic and lumped in this this group of folks who were trying to work this problem out in yeah. the 400s. Yeah, and and he may have been a legit heretic as well. Sure. Um, even though I think we we feel a little bit of empathy for him. Um, he also amassed a great number of followers as yeah. well who sort of perpetuated uh, Nestorian Christianity um, even after he was long gone. And, and Shelley mentions that the Nestorian church... Uh, even exists today. Uh, there's a. This reminds me of a great book I read several years ago um, that deals with some of these sort of pseudo-Christian sects that come out of this period of time. Hmm. Uh, and it's a book by the historian Philip Jenkins called The Lost History of Christianity, because you do have some of these teachers like Nestorius who were, ne- who were deemed to be heretical, but who had a large number of followers who agreed with them hmm. and uh, ultimately break off and become these sect groups, yeah. um, some of which still exist to this day. Um, so there's there's kind of a, a whole sort of fascinating history of, of those groups, even though they were not necessarily Trinitarian Christians, um, who still try to like live life and faith together in some way, shape, or form. So if you're interested in history, and in particular religious history, that's a, a really interesting thing to get into. Nice. So we've got just a few minutes left. Okay. Uh, so walk us through the last of these three heretics, yes. Eutyches. Eutyches. Um, so he is similar to our guy Apollinaris by saying 
Jesus' divinity so swallowed up his human nature that whatever human bit of Jesus was left was like uh, a drop of honey in the sea. And that's mm-hmm. a quote from Eutyches. So yeah. in this view, uh, Jesus' humanity is more of an afterthought. And so yeah. right back, you know, we're right back to losing the entire doctrine of redemption because this doesn't make Jesus human. It just gives him skin like right. you and me. And so this... The, the end result after the, these and probably several other views that were brought up during this time period, the end result of after this barrage of heresy is the Council of Chalcedon. So yeah. we circle back to uh, where we began this chapter, and Shelley sums this all up. Actually, this chapter and our previous chapter uh, summed up with a quote, and the quote is, Against Arius, the church affirmed that Jesus was truly God. And against Apollinaris, that he was truly man. Against Eutyches, it confessed that Jesus' deity and humanity were not changed into something else. And against Nestorius, that Jesus was not divided, but was one person. So that is, that's, that's more or less summing up everything that went down between, you know, 325 up to about 451. And uh, I think I mentioned this the first time uh, we we attempted recording this, but um, I would love to get some like heretic baseball cards made <laughs> so we could keep all these guys in order with yes. just like their stats and their heresy and their like place of origin, their years <laughs> in ministry. I'm going to, that's my Kickstarter. That's you funny. guys be looking for it. One thing I will post is there is a, you know, obviously now we have the Nicene Creed that has come out of the councils of Nicaea and, and Constantinople. Uh, there is also a creed that comes out of Chalcedon as well, and the Chalcedonian creed is primarily trying to uh, get at this um, uh, this doctrine of the incarnation that we've been talking about today. So I, I'm going to post a link to that just in the show notes so you guys can check it out. It is a little bit shorter than the Nicene Creed. So uh, anyway, let's stop there for today. Uh, We've only got just a few chapters left uh, here in our study of the first 500 years of church history, and uh, looking forward uh, to getting into the next chapter with you, Taylor. See y'all. All All right. Bye-bye. Bye.